Man, what a great way to uh, transition into our message this morning as we turn to the Gospel of Luke. We, uh, we've been out of the book of Luke for a while now. I think our last, uh, our last message here in the book of Luke came at the end of November. Pastor Ken uh, left us off uh, with a tremendous message in Luke chapter 14, the first half of the chapter. Today we're going to be picking up in the second half of Luke chapter 14. Uh, in the meantime, between then and today, we have uh, had some pretty big transitions, transitions in our church. I've taken over as the senior pastor. So uh, over the course of the month of December, we uh, did a ser- sermon series called A Church Alive, where we sort of casted some vision for what I believe uh, are going to be the essential characteristics of our church as we move forward. So we talked about being a church grounded in truth, a, a church that's growing in grace, and then a church that's going in faith. And then, of course, last week we talked, uh, we celebrated Christmas Eve and had our Christmas Eve services. Now, today we're going to be going back into the book of Luke. Uh, Again, we are a church that wants to be grounded in truth. And and by that, we mean we are going to stand firmly on the Word of God. We believe that God's Word informs us, instructs us, guides us, leads us, encourages us, challenges us sometimes. But but everything that we're about as a church is ultimately going to be founded upon the Word of God. And so that's why we preach through books of the Bible here. We, we go through the book of Luke and we spend the whole year journeying through the book of Luke because we believe that God gave us a word here, that it's valuable, that it has something to share, and, and we're going to invest our lives in this and let God implant those powerful truths deeply within us. So that's our agenda here, and that's why we're going to be picking up in Luke chapter 14 today. I want to share a story before we get into our message this morning. Uh, when I was in college, my junior year of college, my uh, two of my college roommates had a really uh, swanky internship with Northwestern Airlines. And uh, this was back before Northwest had turned into Delta. And, uh, but my, my two roommates, they had an internship with one of the vice presidents of the airlines. And so they got, I mean, they got all these incredible perks. I mean, they hardly did any work. It's like every weekend they had all, they were going to parties. They were going to, you know, sporting events. They were going on trips across the country, Las Vegas, Las And I'm like, how did you guys get this? Like, I'm stuck in the library reading these big theological commentaries and they're, you know, going on business trips to Las Vegas and stuff. And I'm just like, man, this is unbelievable. Well, December of my junior year, my roommates invited me to come to a Christmas party with them uh, through their work at Northwestern Airlines. Was it Northwest Airlines or Northwestern? Northwest Airlines. Northwest Airlines. They invited me to go on a Christmas party with them. And I'm thinking, okay, well, you know, sure, I'll go. And, and a couple weeks go by and, and the party was coming up and they reminded me, hey, Jason, the party's coming up this Friday night. Are you still coming? And I started thinking to myself, oh, man, you know, I don't want to go to a party at their, you know, at their work. I mean, they don't even work there. They're interns and it's a business party. I mean, how fun could it be? It's probably going to be, you know, like an office break room with a bunch of cubicles and, you know, maybe a little uh, pot of eggnog in the middle or something. And I'm just, you know, so I start thinking to myself, this is going to be lame. I got better things to do. There was a basketball tournament that weekend at Bethel that where I went to college and I wanted to play in this basketball tournament. So I started thinking about all these excuses for how I could get out of this Christmas party. Well, finally, I, 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 sure enough, I was able to kind of to bow out of the party, and I ended up sticking around and playing basketball Friday night, and uh, thought I, you know, had really got myself out of that bad situation. Well, my roommates come back that evening about one in the morning, and they are just totally psyched up. I mean, they are so like excited, so on fire. Jason, you just missed the greatest night ever. Like, I'm like, what happened? I mean, like, how cool could it have been? You're at a party, you know, with your coworkers, and. Well, they had gone to their boss's apartment, downtown Minneapolis, 
uh, where they were going to meet up with him to go to this party. But when they get to the apartment, the boss tells them, no, 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 we're not going to a party down at our corporate headquarters. We're going to a private box suite in the Target Center to watch the Timberwolves game. And so they were in box seats at Target Center watching the T-Wolves game, fully catered. I mean, they had food coming to them. I mean, drinks all night. I mean, everything they could want. And they just had the time of their lives. On top of that, they actually got courtside passes for the pregame. So they're down on the court hanging out with Kevin Garnett and Latrell Sprewell, all these guys. And I'm like sitting there at the rec center, Bethel, playing basketball with a bunch of sweaty, you know, smelly 20-year-olds. What a, what a loser, man. I totally missed out on this incredible opportunity, all because I thought I had uh, something better to do. And so I foolishly turned down this incredible invitation. Well, I, I, I tell us this story this morning because we're going to see a, a parable that Jesus shares where uh, he tells about three individuals who turned down an incredible invitation. They foolishly missed out on, on an incredible banquet that God had planned for them because they had their priorities in a different place and, and thereby missed out on this incredible opportunity. Luke chapter 14 starts out, if you recall from Pastor Ken's message about a month ago, uh, Jesus has been invited to this banquet, to a, a supper at a Pharisee's home. Now, honestly, like you got these guys were not the brightest bulbs on the tree. You know what I'm saying? Like we're 14 chapters into this book. How many times have the Pharisees tried to trap Jesus? And he just keeps getting the upper hand on them, but they haven't learned yet. So once again, they've invited him to this supper and they think they're going to trap Jesus. I mean, these guys are just, it's like Wile E. Coyote or something. They just don't get it. You know what I'm saying? But they invite Jesus to this supper and they've got this guy there who's got this disease and they think we're going to get Jesus to heal this guy. The dinner's on the Sabbath. If he heals the guy on the Sabbath, then he's done work on the Sabbath. Therefore, he's violated God's law. Boom, we've got Jesus trapped. Well, what does Jesus do, right? Well, Jesus, we've talked about this earlier in our series. Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. He can do whatever he wants on the Sabbath, right? He's the son of God in human flesh. So Jesus, of course, he heals this guy. He heals the guy and the Pharisees are like, oh, you did work on the Sabbath. Jesus is like, wait a minute. If one of you has an animal that falls into a ditch or a pit or a friend who, who falls and breaks his bone, a son or daughter, aren't you going to go help them out even if it's on the Sabbath? And the Pharisees are just kind of like, oh yeah, sure, I get it. You know. Jesus said, look it, I just healed a guy. That's my right to do. I'm the son of God. doesn't matter what day it is. And then Jesus goes on to basically insult everybody at the party. I mean, th this is one of the most awkward dinners ever, I'm telling you. Like, like, you know, you ever play that party game? Like, hey, if you could have dinner with any person in all of history, who would you have dinner with? And I think like as, you know, Christians, a lot of us would say like, well, man, I'd love to hang out with Jesus. I, I don't think I'd want to invite Jesus to my dinner party. You know what I'm saying? Like he has this way of just kind of poking you and prodding you where you don't want to be poked and prodded, but, but he does it for our good, for our well-being. But of course, the Pharisees don't see it that way. They're just feeling like assault, insulted and offended. So, so Jesus is looking at these guys and he's saying, guys, look, at you guys showed up at this dinner about an hour ago and you're all clamoring for the best seat at the table. You're fighting and wrestling over who gets to sit next to the host. He says, that's not how it works in the kingdom of God. Jesus says, the last shall be first. And the first shall be last. He says, if you want to be great in God's eyes, you've got to humble yourself. Take the seat at the end of the table. He said, look, at the worst thing that's going to happen is the host is going to tell you to come up and sit at the head of the table, and then you're going to be honored. But even if that doesn't happen, you're going to be honored in God's eyes because you humbled yourself. 
And they're all sitting there feeling offended. And then he turns to the host. Jesus turns to the host and says, and what about you? Look at you. You invited all your rich, wealthy friends and buddies here, your neighbors, and, and, and all these guys. The only reason you invited all these guys is because they can repay you. They can invite you to come to their feast now. And so you didn't really care about them. You just wanted to get in a return invitation to their party. And now the host is sitting there feeling offended, right? Jesus is like, look it, if you want to do something special, invite the poor and the lame and the crippled, right? And, and so Jesus has just managed to like offend everybody at this party. I mean, I'm, I'm telling you, this was one of the most awkward dinner conversations ever. And, and this uncomfortable silence has now like hushed over the whole room. And everybody's just kind of sitting there like, okay, what do we do next? Well, one of these Pharisees blurts out, verse 15 of our passage today, he tries to break this awkward silence. He says, blessed is the man who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. I mean, like, what else are you going to say, right? I mean, everybody's just kind of sitting there, like, looking around, feeling offended, awkward silence. And so this guy blurts out this religious platitude. Well, blessed is he who sits at the feast in the kingdom of God. Now, Jesus doesn't rebuff this man's declaration. But what he does is he uses this man's declaration as an opportunity to address the presumption of the Pharisees. You see, the Pharisees, they thought that they were all good with God. They thought they were tight, they were in, we got our relationship with God locked up because we have the credentials, we have the background, we come from the Jewish ancestry, we, we've kept the law. I mean, we, we've, you know, we got the list of do's and don'ts, Jesus, and we've kept it righteously. And so they thought, based on their credentials, that they were good to go. But the problem is, they didn't understand that, that Jesus came to point us the true way to salvation. The salvation doesn't come through our credentials, who we are, what we've done, what we've proved, how worthy we are. No, our, our salvation comes only through God's gracious invitation into a relationship with him through Jesus. And so here is the very Son of God, the Messiah, who they claim they've been waiting for. And now he's here in their very presence, sitting next to them at this dinner table. But they've been rejecting him this whole time. They've been pushing him away. In fact, they've been trying to entrap him because they don't want him. They wanted a different kind of Messiah. He didn't come the way they expected him to come. They wanted a conquering king. He was a suffering servant. And so they just couldn't buy the fact that this was the long-awaited Messiah. And so they rejected him. And so Jesus uses this opportunity at this feast. He, he shares a parable. And, and, and parables, friends, are simply stories that Jesus told to convey spiritual truth. And, and in our passage today, what we're going to see is Jesus shares a very powerful parable with this group of Pharisees. And, and, and this parable actually has three scenes to it that we're going to look at. But all three scenes point to one powerful application. And that piece of application is simply this. To have a right relationship with God, you have to respond to God's invitation. To have a right relationship with God, you have to respond to God's invitation. Your background, your pedigree, what you've done to prove you're worthy, none of that matters. God's extended an invitation. The question is, have you RSVP'd? to secure your spot. That's the only way you're going to get in to God's gift of salvation. Let's take a look at this passage this morning, Luke chapter 14, 16 through 24. And then I want to come back and I want to look at each of these three scenes that, that highlight this central point that we need to respond to God's invitation. 
Jesus replied to this man's religious platitude. A certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, come for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I've just bought a field and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I've just bought five yoke of oxen and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married, so I can't come. The servant came back and reported this to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you've ordered has been done, but there's still room. Then the master told his servant, go out to the roads and country lanes, make them come in so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those who are invited will get a taste of my banquets. Well, here in this parable, we have three scenes. The first scene we're going to look at this morning, scene number one is this, an invitation has been sent. An invitation has been sent. In verses 16 through 17, the master of this banquet sends out his servant with this invitation telling people to come, come and join this great feast. Now, now Jesus here in this parable begins this story by comparing salvation to a feast. He compares salvation and our ability to have a relationship with God with a feast. Now, now why did Jesus use the metaphor of a feast for our salvation? Well, I, I want you to think about this. Imagine you live in a world with no refrigerators. Imagine you live in a world with no oven. Imagine you live in a world with no running water, no faucet that you can just turn the tap and have all the water you want right at your disposal. You see, understand this, friends. To have a feast in the ancient world was a huge deal. You're talking about a significant amount of investment, time, energy, effort to put this together. I mean, for most people, imagine this. Just to get your next meal day in and day out, took a ton of work. I mean, you had to butcher the animals every day. You had to, you know, cook the food over the fire every day. You had to, you know, go out to the fields, harvest the, harvest the crops. I mean, it, it wasn't like going down to the grocery store or driving up to DQ and, you know, go through the drive through window. No, to have any kind of meal, let alone a major feast, it was a big production to put this together. And so to be invited to a feast where somebody has said, look it, I'm going to throw open my home. I'm going to provide this lavish feast for you. I'm going to, you know, slaughter the animals. We're going to prepare the food. We're going to provide the, the fruits and vegetables. We're going to provide the wine. Everything's going to be provided. This was a big deal. And, and it wasn't just all the provision that was given as part of the invitation, but it was, it was a major social occasion in the ancient world. I mean, people would come together and they would celebrate because this was a cause for celebration. We would get together with our friends and our family, and, and it was a worthy time for celebration. A feast was a big deal. I, I, I sort of equate it to, I remember back when I got married, you know, two weeks ago, my wife and I just celebrated our 14th anniversary. We got married at Northwestern College down in St. Paul, and we had our reception in the blue room down there. If you've ever been down there, it's this really extravagant room, you know, fancy chandeliers and everything. And, and we had this great celebration after our wedding night. I mean, it was one of the funnest nights of my life. I had friends and family from all over the world that came for it. We had an incredible meal, you know, dessert, entertainment. I mean, it was just a great night. And it was so much fun. I mean, the food was terrific, but it was about the fellowship and the friends and, and, the, and the joy of everybody being together celebrating. 
And, and I think that's kind of the picture that Jesus wants us to get of our salvation. Salvation is a feast. It's a, it's a lavish banquet. It's, it's the joy of being in the presence of our brothers and sisters who have come together to worship Jesus. And God has blessed us and poured out all of these incredible blessings. And we get to celebrate this together. And you know, I, I th- this is an important reminder, friends. When you come to Jesus, remember this. Your salvation is like a feast. It's not a funeral. You know, there's a lot of people in our world. I, I think they, they look at salvation coming to Jesus like they're going to a funeral. You know what I mean? Oh, man. You know, sure, I'm going to become a Christian, but then I got to give up all this stuff in my life. I got to stop doing this or that. That stuff's garbage. That's garbage. You don't want that stuff. Jesus is inviting you to a feast, man. Jesus says, John 10.10, 10, I, I want you to have life and life to the full. Where are you going to get that? You're going to get that at the feast. That's where the food is. That's where the joy is. That's where the fellowship is. And that's where the contentment is. That's what life to the full is all about. That's salvation. See, see, life with Jesus is so much better than anything this world has to offer. And that's why Jesus tells us this parable equating salvation to this great banquet, this feast. So in verse 17, the master of the banquet sends out his servant and he says, look, go out, invite the guests to come to the banquet. Now, now in the ancient world, the invitation process was, was two parts. See, they, they would first send out an initial invitation, but then it would take them a long time to prepare the banquet. It might take days or even weeks to prepare the banquet, right? Because they had to get all the food together. They had to cook it all. And then when everything was ready, they would send out the servants again and say, all right, now come because everything's been prepared. Come and join us at the banquet. Now, I want you to look at these verses here, this verse in verse 17. The servant goes out on behalf of the master. No, back one, back one, please. The servant goes out on behalf of the master and he says, come for everything is now ready. Go forward one slide, please. Come for everything is now ready. You had it before. There we go. Now, I want you to think about this invitation with me. All right? Look at this invitation. First of all, it's a simple invitation. Come. Just come. All right? Romans 10, 13, the Apostle Paul says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Just come. It's simple. There's no elaborate rituals, no elaborate, elaborate for, formula, no hoops to jump through. Just come. And not only is it a simple invitation, but it's a sufficient invitation. The servant says, everything is now ready. It's all prepared. It's all laid out for you. Just come and enjoy it. God has done everything necessary for our salvation. Friends, remember when Jesus was hanging on the cross and he died on behalf of our sins. He shed his blood on behalf of our sins. Do you remember Jesus' last words as he hung on the cross? John 19.30, he said what? It is finished. It is finished. There's nothing more you need to do. There's nothing you can do to earn it. There's nothing you can do to work for it. There's nothing you can do to prove your worthiness to God. Jesus did it all for us. And he said, it is finished. When he died on the cross, he paid the penalty for our sins and he stamped paid in full. It is finished. It's complete. And so the servant goes out and he extends this invitation on behalf of the master. Everything is now ready. It's a simple invitation. It's a sufficient invitation. God has provided everything we need. And you know, as I think about this, 
you know, this incredible verse, these incredible words, some of the greatest words in the Bible, come for everything is now ready. Friends, doesn't this just really explain the difference between the gospel and every other religion in the world? Right? When you think about the difference between Jesus and the gospel and other religions, I mean, my, my family and I, we were at the Mall of America this last week, and my mom had given the kids uh, wristbands for Nickelodeon Universe. And so we went to the Mall of America, and they were on rides all day. And Kim and I were sitting in this little alcove area while our kids were on a ride. And it was about 5 o'clock at night, and this, this woman comes up. She was a Muslim woman. She was dressed in a full burqa from head to toe. And she pulled out of her bag this prayer mat, and she rolled it out on the floor right there in the middle of Nickelodeon Universe. And for about 15 minutes, she started prostrating herself on the floor like this over and over again, saying prayers to Allah. You know, a lot of people would look at that woman and think, man, what devotion, what faithfulness. I looked at that woman and my heart broke for her. Because, you see, I understood that when a Muslim prays, a Muslim prays the same words every time they pray. They say, God, have mercy on me. And the reason a Muslim will plead for mercy five times a day is because they do not know the grace of God. They do not know that God is our Heavenly Father who loved us so much that he sent his Son into the world to pay the sacrifice, the offering for our sin so that we could have a right relationship with God. Instead, the Muslim is taught in the Quran that on the day of judgment, their good deeds are going to be weighed in a balancing scale, their good and bad deeds. But the problem for the Muslim is they're never quite sure they're doing enough good deeds to outweigh their bad. And so day after day, they plead for mercy. God, have mercy on me. Because they don't know the grace of God. See, friends, that's the great difference between the gospel and religion. See, religion says you got to prove your worthiness. There's something that you need to do to earn your way to God. There's something that you must do or perform or work through in order to show God that you deserve to be in his presence. But the problem is, friends, there's nothing that we could ever do to earn a place in God's presence. Because God is holy. He is pure. He knows no sin. And so what are you going to do? I mean, how many good works, how many prostrations, what, what's it going to take for you to prove to a perfect holy God that you deserve to be in his presence? There's nothing you can do. And that's why God and his great love for us broke into human history. That's what we celebrated this past week at Christmas time. God and his love for us became a man and he laid down his life sacrificially for us as the perfect lamb of God. And when he died, his shed blood covers our sins. He atones for our sins so that we can be washed and cleansed and made new and have a right relationship with our holy, perfect God. And it's all because of Jesus. It's all because of what he's done. It's nothing about what we have done to earn his favor. You can't earn his favor. It's all about Jesus. See, that's the good news of the gospel. It's, it's a simple invitation. It's a sufficient invitation. But friends, have you RSVP'd for it? Have you sent in your RSVP for God's banquet? Because that's the only way to get in. God's open invitation is for all. But you need to respond. You have to put your trust in Jesus. Look at what Revelations twenty two seventeen says. The spirit and the bride say, come. Let him who hears say, come. Whoever is thirsty, let him come. And whoever wishes, let him take the free gift of the water of life. Come. Such a simple invitation. 
It's a sufficient invitation. Everything has been done. And it's an invitation that's extended to you. Have you responded to God's invitation? The second scene we see in our parable this morning, scene two, is we see that the invitation is spurned. The invitation's been sent, but the invitation was spurned, sadly. 2,000 years ago, the Messiah came into the world, but the Messiah didn't look like the Jewish people thought the Messiah was supposed to look like. He didn't come as a conquering king. He came as a suffering servant. And so the Jewish people of his day, the majority of them rejected Jesus. They were looking for an emperor. He came as a lamb. And so they passed on Jesus. And sadly, as Jesus points out in our parable, many in our world today refuse God's invitation. In our parable, we find three excuses given for why people don't respond to this great banquet God offers us. The first man let his possessions keep him away. He had a property deal to tend to. The second man let his business keep him occupied. He had just bought some new oxen. He had to go try them out and go plow a field. The third man let his relationship keep him from attending. He had just gotten married. Now, friends, it's not necessarily that any of these excuses are bad in and of themselves, but they're still excuses. And they still kept these guys from being a part of this great banquet that they had been invited to. Now, now I want you to notice something about the excuses given here. Aren't these some of the very same excuses that many of us still wrestle with today? Aren't these some of the very same excuses that keep us from enjoying life to the full in Jesus? To enjoy the fellowship of the banquet that God invites us to in our salvation? These excuses are, are so common even now in our own world. You know, many people miss out on a relationship with Jesus because they're more in love with their stuff. Their priority is their toys. They've, they've given their hearts to the wrong God. But you know something, friends? You'll never see a U-Haul behind a hearse. You can't take it with you. And so why not invest your life in things of eternal value? Things that moth and rust can't destroy, but things that will live for eternity. You know, other people are so busy with their business that they have no time for God. But let me tell you something, friends. One day you're going to leave this world, and guess what? Business is going to go on as usual without you, believe it or not. You know, I remember a few years ago, remember when, when Steve Jobs, the founder of Apple, passed away? Remember all the news commentators that, that week when Steve Jobs passed away? What's Apple going to do? Oh, man, Steve Jobs, he was the legend. He was the visionary. He was the, he was the engine that drove this company. Friends, I was in the Apple store last weekend. You could barely move. It was so packed. Apple's doing just fine without Steve Jobs. Trust me. You see, that's how life works, friends. You might think your life is all about business and your career and your occupation, but you know what? You're going to die one day, and I promise you, your business is going to go on just as usual without you. Either somebody's going to come in and step in and fill your shoes, or somebody's going to come and take over your business, or somebody's going to come in and fill in that niche in the market. But it doesn't matter whether you're here or not. Business will go on just like it always has from the beginning of time. And so again, the question is, why would you not invest your life in things of eternal value instead of being so concerned about the things of today? 
And you know, friends, while marriage and family are really a blessing, and they deserve our affection. Even marriage and family can keep us from the greater treasure of knowing Christ and growing in our relationship with him. I mean, how many times have I heard people say to me, Jason, I don't go to church on Sunday because it's the only day I can spend time with my family. Friends, how short-sighted can you be? You need to spend time with your family. You need to invest in your family. But you know what? Your family needs you to be a man or a woman of God, first and foremost. Your family needs you to point them to Jesus. Your family needs to be seen the path that leads to righteousness. Your family needs you to bring them into the fellowship of the body of Christ so they have other believers challenging them, helping them grow, spurring them on. You know, spend time with your family, but you need to make Jesus a priority. Now, now understand this here, friends. Jesus in this parable today, he doesn't demean our possessions or our jobs or our relationships, but what Jesus is highlighting here is that none of them, none of them is more significant than he. But sadly, many people get their priorities all out of whack. You know, life is sort of like this cone of priorities. It's kind of like a pyramid. And, and, and we plug in the various layers of the pyramid, the things that are important to us. And, and the reality is Jesus says he wants to be number one. He wants to be the pinnacle of the pyramid. He wants to be the focal point of our lives. And Jesus says, look, when you put me first, then everything else will fall into its rightful place. But, but so many times the temptation for all of us, I think, is, is we, we start plugging in the things of value to us and, and sometimes we, we put family up ahead or we put our jobs up ahead and then our hobbies and, you know, and, and our career. We plug in all the things that are important to us and then oftentimes Jesus ends up getting relegated to like the second or third or fourth tier. And, and then when things start falling apart in life or things don't start working the way they, that we thought they were going to work out, we're not feeling fulfilled. We're not feeling content. We're not feeling blessed. Then, then we start to question, God, what are you doing? What are you doing, God? What are you doing? Your priorities are all out of order. Right? You got to put Jesus number one. And when you put Jesus number one, then everything else will fall into place. That's the way life works. That's the way you were created to function, friends. You were made to live in a relationship with Jesus where he is the pinnacle, the focal point. And when we put him there, then everything else falls into its rightful place. Look at this great quote from C.S. Lewis, the famous writer. If we put first things first, we get second things thrown in. But if we put second things first, we lose both the first and the second things. You see, this is what Jesus was talking about, Matthew 6, Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all these things will be added unto you. Now, now understand this. Jesus wasn't promising health, wealth, and prosperity. Look, if I follow Jesus, I'm going to be rich and blessed and healthy. That's not what Jesus is saying. But what Jesus is saying is, look, when we seek him first and his righteousness first, then everything else in life, life just sort of falls into place. We feel fulfillment, we feel contentment, we feel joy. And you know what? My circumstances don't matter at that point. Whether I'm sick or healthy or rich or poor, right? When Jesus is number one, everything just sort of falls into place. And the reason for that is because that's the way our creator made us. We plug into him, we put him first, and then all these things will be added unto you. That's the truth of God's word, friends. 
But sadly, so many people get their priorities out of order. Let me encourage you this morning, don't miss out on the banquet. Don't miss out on God's salvation and all the blessings that come with it because you've settled for lesser things. There is no greater treasure in this world than Jesus. So make sure to RSVP, make your RSVP, get your seat at the table. Make sure your banquet seat is waiting for you. There's nothing more important. The, the, The third scene we find in our parable today The invitation is spread. Verses 21 through 24. Let me just read these again. The servant came back and reported this to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered the servant, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. And so the master of the banquet says, look, if they're not going to respond to my invitation, then go out and find others who will. I don't care if they're poor, crippled, blind, lame, bring them in because I want my banquet to be full. See, by this point in the story, you have to imagine the Pharisees are starting to get the point of Jesus' message. And the crux of Jesus' parable here is that only a positive response to God's invitation will get you a seat at God's banquet table. But, but now Jesus is going to scandalize them even more. For while many of the Jews had rejected God's invitation, Jesus now makes it clear that God will make sure his banquet table is full there will be guests at God's party. And so he says, go out and invite the blind, the lame, the crippled, the outcasts of society, because I want my table to be full. Jesus tells us that God has extended his invitation of salvation to those who are typically seen as the outcasts of society. The poor, the disabled, those who couldn't care for themselves. See, friends, this is what the grace of God does. It reaches out to, in love to those who are unloved. It reaches out with, with desire to those who are unwanted. It reaches out with a welcome to those who traditionally feel unwelcomed. And it invites people in that nobody else would invite in. Listen to these lines of Vacal Lindsay's poem, General William Booth Enters Heaven. Walking lepers followed rank on rank. Lurching bravos from the ditches dank. Vermin-eaten saints with moldy breath. Unwashed legions from the ways of death. Drabs and vixens in a flash made whole. Gone was the weasel head, the snout, the jowl. Sages and sibyls now and athletes clean. Rulers of empires and forests green. General William Booth was the founder of the Salvation Army. He's one of my personal heroes. He made it his life's goal to care for the least of these in society, to minister to the poor and the outcasts of society. General William Booth, he had a famous phrase. His famous motto was, soup, soap, and salvation. We're going to feed you, we're going to clean you up, and then we're going to tell you about Jesus and his love for you. Soup, soap, and salvation. See, friends, this is what grace looks like. This is what the gospel does. And look around God's banquet table this morning, friends. Who are you going to see? Who do you see sitting there? You see adulterers like David. You see liars like Peter, harlots like Rahab, Pharisees like Paul, drunks and drug addicts and the depressed and the self-righteous and the hot-tempered and the hypocrites. And God's banquet table is full of them. And friends, aren't you thankful? I mean, these are my kind of people. These are the people I deserve a seat with. 
but God has opened up his banquet table to all of us. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter what your background, God's invitation is simply come. I've got a seat at the table. Have you taken your seat? Have you RSVP'd for God's banquet? In verses 22 through 23, the servant says, Sir, all these things have been done, but there's still room. And so the master told his servant, Go out to the country roads and the lanes and make them come in. I want my house to be full. And here at the end of this parable, we find a prophetic reference to the Gentiles who would be invited into God's kingdom through faith in Christ. And friends, most of us here today have come to God's banquet of salvation because God graciously extended the gospel to those outside the line of Abraham. You see, God wants his house to be full. And because of that, he's offered the hope of the gospel to all people. And friends, that's why Lake's free. That's why this church is a great commission church. Great commission, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel and make disciples. That's what we're about here. We're about making disciples. We're helping to train you as disciples so that you can go out and reach others and make them disciples so that they can then be trained to go out and reach other disciples. That's what, that's what we're about. Okay, That's what the church is here for. We're not here for anything else but to train disciples who go out to make other disciples. Okay, Understand that. That's the whole point of Jesus in Christianity. Make disciples, train them, send them out to make other disciples. It's like the Apostle Paul says in Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ because of the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, first for the Jews and then to the Gentiles. That's the gospel. It's available to all. It's the power of God unto salvation. But sadly, many in our world today caricature the message of the gospel. Many in our world today paint this false vision of the gospel as being exclusive and intolerant. How how dare you say Jesus is the only way to salvation? That's so narrow-minded. That's so exclusive. That's so intolerant. We've all heard statements like these. But what a tragic misunderstanding of the gospel this is. Let me ask you a question. Two years ago when my wife was diagnosed with cancer, when the oncologist told her that she needed to go through chemotherapy, surgery, and radiation to save her from her cancer, was that oncologist being exclusive and narrow-minded? I mean, man, you know, we went to that oncologist. Well, what do you mean? We can't just do some acupuncture? Who are you to tell me that, you know, just taking some Tylenol won't fix things for her? Friends, that would have been foolish. Because my wife had a disease that needed to be treated, and there was only one course of treatment that was going to work. And you see, what matters in life and reality is what is true. Not our personal subjective opinions, not what we wish to be the case. And when it comes to the issue of salvation, the reality is all of us have a spiritual disease called sin. And there's not an abundance of cures out there for this thing, friends. You have sin in your life. It's a spiritual disease that will eat away and destroy you for all of eternity. And there's only one cure for it. And that's to embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ, to put your trust in his shed blood, which covers our sins and cleanses us of all unrighteousness. And there's only one cure for it. It's Jesus. 
and the truth of the gospel and the beauty of the gospel, friends, is God's banquet invitation is available to all of us. It's available to all people. It's freely offered, no exceptions. All who will may come to this banquet, but you need to secure your spot at the table. You need to send in your RSVP. John 3, 16 through 18 says this, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. See, friends, you're sick. You have a disease. There's only one cure. It's Jesus. If you don't take the cure that's prescribed, who are you to complain when you die from your disease? God's holding out the cure. The invitation's been made, and he just simply says, come. Come and take a seat at my banquet table. Salvation's available to all of us, friends. Have you RSVP'd to Jesus? Have you secured your place? Some of you might be thinking, well, Jason, how do I do that? It's a simple matter, friends. You put your trust in Jesus. You confess your sins. You make him the Lord of your life. And he'll do a work in your heart. He'll transform you. He'll make you a new creation. But you got to trust in Jesus. It's the only way. I want to close in a word of prayer this morning, and I'm just going to pray, and I'm going to invite you. If, if you're here this morning and you've never embraced God's invitation to the banquet, I'm going to give you a chance to do that this morning. Because there's nothing more important that you would ever do in your entire life. And, and, and those of us who are Christians here this morning, who have already secured our spot, we've sent in our RSVP, look at I'm going to pray that God inspires us with a great vision to go out and extend that invitation to others. Because every single one of us here has people in our lives who need Jesus. They haven't responded. They don't even know the invitation's been extended to them. And that's on us. We've got to take that invitation. Let's close in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these powerful words from the book of Luke this morning. And I just pray, Jesus, that all of us here would, would take this parable to heart that we would uh, recognize that there's only one way to have a right, right relationship with you, and that's by responding to your invitation of salvation by grace through faith in Jesus. We thank you, Lord, that there's not a lot of hoops we got to jump through. There's not these elaborate rituals we need to perform. We simply need to trust in what you've done for us when you died on the cross. And so, Lord, I thank you. I thank you for cleansing me of my sins. I thank you for making me a new creation. I thank you for doing that for all of my friends in here this morning who have also put their trust in you. And Lord, would you give us a burden, a passion to take that invitation and spread it and extend it to others who don't yet know you? God, make us a church that that hungers to see more people come to salvation in you, Lord. Let that be our driving passion. And Jesus, there might be somebody here this morning who hasn't yet responded to your invitation. And I just pray right now, if they want to respond to your invitation of salvation, that right here, right now, in the quiet of their own heart, that they might just say a simple prayer. Something like, Lord Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. I know I've rebelled against you. But Jesus, I put my trust in you today. I put my hope in you today. Jesus, I I want to trust that when you died on the cross that your shed blood can forgive my sins.
I believe that. I claim that. Lord Jesus, I want to put you at the pinnacle of my life. I want you to be number one from here on out. I'm going to follow you, Jesus. My friends, I tell you, if you would pray that prayer, if you would open your heart to the Lord today, he will do a new work in you. He will wipe away your sins. He'll make you a new creation. There's nothing better than that. And you can know for all of eternity that your seat at the table is secure. Thank you, Jesus, for your faithfulness to us. We pray all these things in your name. Amen.